Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. This episode of the SickCast is from a live webinar entitled 1947 South Asia, Punjab, and Sikhs, featuring presenters Harinder Singh, Amandeep Singh Sandhu, and Tridivesh Singh Mani. The event originally aired on August 13, 2022. Thank you for tuning in to today's webinar hosted by the Sikh Research Institute. Um, thank you. For Today's webinar is 1947, South Asia, Punjab, and Six. This webinar will begin with a moderated discussion between our panelists, after which we'll have time for Q&A from the audience. So please uh, drop your questions in the chat box and be sure to include your name and city. I'll be throwing in periodic reminders for questions. Um, now I'd like to quickly introduce today's panelists. We'll start with Amandeep Singh Sandhu, who's completed his master's in English literature. For the past few years, he has written for the media and contributed to anthologies. Punjab, Journeys Through Fault Lines is his first nonfiction book. He is currently a Homi Baba fellow working on a book on six outside Punjab, but within India. I know that he has two cats that, is that have taken over his life. I'm sure he'll share a little bit about them, uh, maybe even sharing their names. Um, Next, we have Harinder Singh. Harinder Singh is a thinker, author, and educator. He's the co-founder and innovation director at the Sikh Research Institute. If you've tuned into a webinar before, you know about his love for single origin light roast coffee, which we got to we got to get to know that side of Harinder Singh at Siddiq for the past two weeks. His current focus is on availing the message of the Guru Granth Sahib to global populations and developing critical thinking in Sikh institutions. He currently resides in the United States with his family. And lastly, we have Tridivesh Singh, who is a New Delhi-based policy analyst. He co-authored Humanity Amidst Insanity, Hope During and After the Indo-Pak Partition, and is one of the editors of Warriors After War, Indian and Pakistani Retired Military Leaders Reflect on Relations Between the Two Countries, Past, Present, and Future. Uh, he shared with us that he's a cricket and Punjabi music buff. Maybe that'll come up today. Maybe it won't. Uh, you'll have to tune in to see where our conversation goes. Uh, yeah, again, thank you everyone for tuning in and I'll uh, pass it to her and they're saying. Thank you, Madhvinder and Vaigurji Ka Khalsa, Vaigurji Ki Fateh and greetings of the day, depending on where you are on the globe from a morning to the evening. Uh, the conversation today really is going to be uh, between Tridvesh and Amandeep. It's actually an outcome and an outgrowth of conversations we've been having since earlier this year, since the Punjab elections. Uh, and what we have been talking about is has been changing. So I want to be just upfront about what we are doing today. We've been talking about what's happening within the Indian side of Punjab, which is what we are used to since 1966. But as this is a partition 75th year anniversary, we are also uh, we are aware of it that what has happened since 1849 in case of Punjab and the six, when Punjab was annexed, and when the British left in 47. The two larger nations of India and Pakistan were born. And there's a lot of history attached to all of those things. So we may not be, we actually will not be covering things related to 
both sides of the border as much as we would like, because that's not our expertise, but we will touch upon it. And where we need to, we will invoke the historical accounts, but largely we are focused on post-1947, after the Red Cliff line was drawn uh, arbitrarily, essentially, by the British. And with after 47, we are largely going to be looking at the Indian side of Punjab, and within there are certain Sikh aspirations and dissatisfactions as well. Uh, that said, before we begin our conversation, you know, I, I woke up this morning and I looked at, uh, as a personal practice, the hokum from uh, Sri Amrasar Sahib. And it was Todi Mahalla Panjima today. It's very interesting because Todi is one of those rags, depending on how it's sung, it could be very mournful and sad, or it could be very festive and playful. I think that's sort of what we are going to be looking at when we talk about Punjab and Sikhs. And when we look at what happened in 66 to 47 to 84 to 1849, and we can go, you know, 3,000 years back when it was uh, Harappan civilization and the Indus Valley civilization, and you're going to find that playfulness or sadness throughout the times. And we are seeing the same things even in the last six months. So in this conversation, what we wanted to focus on was actually the Hukum Pahara, let me mention, and the line which Guru Arjan Sahib starts with is that, uh, uh, that there is a grip. We are caught up in a particular grip, and the grip is of the pride. Garab gehenlo, mudlo hiore. So this idea of, hey, are you caught up in the grip of pride? I think that's kind of instructive, at least for me, what Guru Arjan Saab, whose project was in Punjab, and his project included both Amritsar and Lahore, uh, it tells us about when we are in the grip of pride, how we need the Maharaj. And the Maharaj for Guru Arjan Saab is that Ikkovankar, the creative force. And hopefully some of that we can invoke today too. So to start with, uh, we're going to be looking at some of the current trends. And just not because there's no... Uh, we cannot say anything for certain. Things are always volatile. They're always bloody. They're always muddy. There is a nuancing needed. So, but we, what we do though at this point is that there is a significant portion of section of Punjabis and the Sikhs who feel estranged. And uh, what are the historical, cultural, and geopolitical uh, trade, including economic context and the realities of current times, especially in the context of last couple of years, maybe last five years, and how can those which these trends which we're going to be talking about, how can they be addressed given the current realities? So it's in this context I would like to start a conversation with Mr. Manny and uh, Mr. Sandhu. I personally just call him Pradesh and Amandeep, and uh, we will keep it more conversational. So to start with, Pradesh, um, uh, the first question I have is for you, and we've been talking about some of these things, uh, and uh, again we have gone back and forth on some of this, but. I want to start with some glimmers of hope over the last few years, uh, because sometimes we lose hope and without, if we don't have those hopes, then everything looks extremely dark. And even when it is extremely dark, we still need those lights of hope. So one of the glimmers of the hope of the last five years, 10 years has been the Kartarpur corridor. And you've been writing about it, you've been speaking about it. Can you actually put it in the larger context of South Asia and the globe? what this, uh, the so-called, the most dangerous border in the world, what was providing when the Kartarpur corridor opened up? Uh, 
at the outset thank you for giving us opportunity in uh, vaigurjia khalsa vaigurjee fateh uh, so there are a couple of things uh, first of all it's you know there is if you look at the last 5 years you very rightly pointed out that if you look at the subcontinent and india and pakistan in general uh, in particular the relationship has been rather frosty and there have been minimal areas where there have been exchanges uh, that is always the case but the last from 2019 onwards especially the relationship has only gone downhill but in the midst of this uh, we had the inauguration of the sikartarpur sahib religious corridor uh, in november 2019 then this was closed down uh, for a year and a half uh from march 2020 till about uh, till uh, november 2021 now ever since the reopening of the corridor uh in november 2021 one obviously you know the uh, devotees have once again got a chance you know to pay obeisances uh, to gopadarshan that is obvious and that is for you know that is a very important part of the corridor but what has also happened is the corridor has you know resulted in numerous uh, reunions of uh, for instance separated families and this number goes into hundreds now the effort uh, has largely been put in by civil society so for instance the punjabi lehar which has been carrying out uh, youtube interviews of survivors on both sides that has played a pivotal role uh, in you know ensuring that you know uh, people uh, individuals can get reunited from both sides and about two few days ago there was a similar case where a 92 year old sikh gentleman from east punjab got reunited with his nephew uh, probably the only surviving member of the family so this is i think a very important uh, the corridor the religious corridor is important not just in the context of india pakistan relations in giving a push to people to people ties but also giving hope at a time when not just in south asia but globally the narrative is becoming more insular you know when you looked at globalization in the 1990s about open borders uh, and a general openness there is a total reversal of that so what is happening now uh, as i said one is obviously irrespective of what the political establishments want it it is the efforts of the civil society and people but it's a very important narrative uh, which is important in the global context about how civil society can play an important role and how they have made an effective use of technology of social media so there are multiple angles to this and then of course uh, the re- recent uh, i think a very important uh, step by the jathedar of the sri kal takht sahib also that you know that will be an ardas for all those uh, who actually bore the brunt of partition large numbers of individuals hindu sikhs and muslims i think that is also a very important uh, intervention so in the both in the context of the region and in a global context i think this is a message which really uh, i mean this is a new uh, narrative which is being set and today it may seem to be very far fetched but it is very important and is a model actually for conflict resolution which is driven by uh, civil society and by organic efforts yeah uh, thank you for uh, bringing in even the recent comments you know of uh, gyani harpreet singh the acting jathedar of akaltak sahib as appointed by sgpc Th- this part is ver- i mean i think it's also indicative of where sikhs are and the sikh politics is also or sikh religiosity for that matter because in 47 obviously we know 
the Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs, Havan bhi ban gaye si na. We actually went crazy as communities, as individuals within the communities. They were killing each other. It's the largest migrations, and on both sides, you're gonna hear on 14th and 15th uh, speeches at from Islamabad and Delhi as to what the nations have accomplished. But I think when Jatendra Kalpak is invoking this sentiment of Ardas, I think this is where Sikhs are. Our only thing we are able to do currently in terms of making contribution is invoke what Kartarpur corridor was invoking. It's like at the time of Guru Nanak Sahib, it was bridging of the two civilizations as well, right? Uh, what you had, uh, the larger, what we now call the Hindu civilization, which really is the South Asian elements. And it's a... It's a addressing of the larger Islamic civilization, which was coming through the Semitic traditions to Punjab. Uh, let me actually move this to, to history. And just for our audience, we're going to go back and forth between Tiradesh and Amandeep, uh, between geopolitics, economics, trade, history, and the current contemporary realities as well. Uh, and at the end, for last half hour, we will be taking your questions as well. So Amandeep, in this context, let me actually bring... Uh, which is on many people's mind, and it is definitely in your mind, you and I talk about this quite often, that Punjab in 75 years and last 10 years again, or last 40 years, Punjab seems to be uh, sort of settled terms for battle is how you put it, but not for systems. So how can Punjab move from this reactive politics to proactive politics. And what I mean by that is post-47, there have been movements in Punjab, including the ones which are led by Sikhs, but within the confine of India. And post-47, in 75 years, in last 40 years, last 60 years since Punjabi Subha movement, Punjab has always been that reactive politics. So when you're looking for, are Punjabis led by Sikhs ready for some systematic things, or are they only going to be just settling terms for battles? When, when I, <clears throat> first of all, thank you for inviting me and uh, greetings to all. Um, when I was start, when I was doing my book, uh, one of our common friends said to me that, you know, what you'll see in Punjab in the last 150 years has been going on for 3000 years. Hmm. And that is to do with the geography of Punjab. That's to do with the location of Punjab. That's to do with Punjab being the gateway to the Indian subcontinent, um, the channel, the path through which everybody was coming in. And I personally see, I mean, one of the reasons to do the book was 25 years after militancy has peace returned to Punjab. And I don't see peace returning. In fact, I discovered that the discontent had grown much larger. Um, yes, Punjab is primed for battle because it has to fight. It doesn't have an option. See, this Punjab, current Punjab, in India Punjab, is part of an Indian nation. And the way the nation deals, or Delhi deals with Punjab, Punjab ends up responding to that. The unfortunate thing is that say, before independence or post-independence for two, three decades, Punjab was dictating certain terms. But now, the way militancy was dealt with and after that, we have lost that space to be able to dictate terms. If you look back at Anandpur Sahib resolution, it was a far-thinking, very good resolution, a thing that India needed, a greater federal structure, 
diversification of crops, all sorts of rights for people, for workers. But the center has an interest in in sub in subduing such such thoughts, such ideas coming from Punjab. And then after that, it all became what we know the history that we have seen in the post-1966 uh, uh, Punjab. But I think what has happened here is we need to notice is that this is what a colonial power would do. This is what Britishers did with India. This is what current regimes will do with Punjab. And what do they work on? As the Shabad Bhai Guru Arjan Sahib today, they work on your pride. And they work in creating factionalism within you. Punjab is deeply divided over who is left and who is Panthic. And it is divided on caste, it's divided on gender, it's divided on many other things. I think at some point, all Punjabis and the Sikhs need to acknowledge that these are our issues together. And we need to we need to own our issues. What goes on in Punjab is blame game. You did this, so I did this. That has to cease because we can't go on blaming each other while our battles are somewhere else. And that battle is getting that is happening right now. As we will discuss in the evening, I think what uh, Hindutva India is doing to Punjab is dire for Punjabis. And we need to learn to handle this. You know, and I think we'll come to it as we progress in our talk. But one thing I would add is given whatever has happened recently, I remember you invited me two years back to this talk. And I had said that Punjab needs to create a bank of its own. We used to have the Punjab National Bank one time, but we now need a bank of our own. We, of course, need truth and reconciliation over those decade and a half of militancy that has happened. Because just today, two police officers have been given punishment, you know, in the CBI court. Uh, these are very small. They, and 30 years later, they have been given punishment. You can imagine how much is the pain in Punjab. Uh, we need to create a bank. Um, Manisa will talk about cross-border trade, which I think is very important. But I would talk about a linguistic unity between the two Punjabs, which is actually the 10th biggest language in the world. And then look at trade from that. Uh, we can discuss this more. But I think right now, we have seen what happened in the elections. And we have seen what has happened after the elections with a new party in Punjab. There is a dire need for Punjab to have a local Punjab-focused political party. And I can't overemphasize the need for this. To happen in Punjab, happen now, happen today, should have happened yesterday. Because in two years, we have Lok Sabha elections, another four and a half years, we have state elections. And unless we have a people who represent us, truly represent us, I don't think we can make gains against a nation the way it has become now. Uh, you know, uh, Amandeep, you, you invoked various elements in here. In fact, just to see Battle the Galkarayo, Punjabi, which Shah Muhammad has written that Jang Nama, even then he wrote that that uh, with the British it was a Jang Hind Punjab, and the six sentiments have invoked that since 84 as well. So the battle part remains, and I think the two things you are 
bringing to the table one is coming back to this idea of bank you know punjab and sindh bank and then eventually bank of punjab in fact that's been in the news for last two years as well and you added to it essentially a regional political party in the indian punjab and the larger on the both sides of border this idea of what really is punjabi nationalism now you know people who show up on the both sides of the border where the freedom at midnight actually didn't strike although it remained a good book uh, what is their vision what is their next version uh, and i think uh, as you both so well know that uh, historically we didn't have you invoke left again as well uh, we there was a time in punjab that the premier of punjab uh, equivalent to prime minister today was a unionist party leader who was a muslim man although he represented elite interests but still that was the kind of punjab even under the british it was developing so these battles what is the next battle i think they'll get nuance and what you're saying is a political party in the indian punjab uh, some consolidation is needed there but i want to actually start i take the next question to still you because you brought up interesting point when you opened it up today and you basically said punjab does lead certain things punjab and you brought it from a hindutva angle even in last 7 years we are seeing through the farmers protest how that has happened so the question is that how come the hindi speaking regions of india current india uh how come they uh, have they taken into the quagmire as well why is it that only punjab and uh maybe to certain extent bengal and we have talked about kerala and tamil nadu they do speak but what shall punjab do uh, are you saying that in the current scenario is india doomed from the perspective of uh where the hindutva politics has taken and why is it that uh the confrontation is then because there's a cost of it it becomes versus six rather than punjab because of the six symbolisms and six leadership and influences at certain levels can you uh, speak to that a bit yeah two or three things here i mean frankly if india goes the way it is going i think it is doomed there is no doubt in my mind because whatever you know taranga and all that you are doing right now a politician said she said instead of looking at gdp you are looking at dp now you know this the picture on social media i mean it has all become a politics of propaganda a politics of hate and there has been no focus really on any kind of development in the last 8 years in fact before this current party came to power india was just poised i'm not saying it was doing very well it was just in 2013 14 just poised to take the next step into becoming a, a a better economy but after that starting from demonetization until now we've just been slipping down you know of course covid did its damage but the point is that whose politics is this this whole cow politics it belongs to this central five six states and let us look at those states i mean they are lowest on developmental indices and they're taking the rest of the country down where they are and that is threatening to me because i mean it's not only punjab of course because punjab is at that critical place kashmir look at the kashmir three years nothing has happened after abrogation of the article 370 and 35a or look at south indian states i live in bangalore or look at northeast india all these other regions are sort of struggling on how 
to not fall into this quagmire, as you use the word, which has developed in the center of India. And that is extremely, you know, scary a prospect to look at. Because I tell you what is happening, and this is what my very important concern is, is that since 1973, India has not has had delimitation of seats in the parliament. Now they're building this new parliament with, somebody says it will have a thousand seats, you know. But the point is that in the last five decades, the population has grown. And uh, political constituencies uh, have irregular populations. Like Central Delhi has more than 10 lakhs. Lakshwadeep has some 50,000, you know. So there is a need for delimitation, definitely. But you know the irony? Three, four decades back, when the five-year plans used to be there, southern states followed them. They followed family planning, they followed industrial development, they followed greater education for people. And now their populations have shrunk. While these five, six states, their population has ballooned. So if you have to give seats on the basis of number of people, they will easily get 50 to 70 seats more and the southern states will lose them. And where is Punjab in all this? Its growth rate has been steady, but uh, it won't get more than 13 MPs or maybe 15 MPs it will get. But if the other MPs have become seven, 800, then look at where will we be? We are already very small and we will further shrink. And that is the crisis in my mind. It is a study I don't know for sure, but by 2026, Uttar Pradesh alone, which is 22 crore people now, will actually, by 2026, will have 33% of parliamentary seats. Like, look at where, where it is going. What needs to be scrapped is this first past the post. What needs to be brought in is proportional representation. And I'll take it back to 1931, to Master Tara Singh saying at that time that we need proportional representation. Instead of all those things happening, we are now going back to a place where these five, six states will dictate every single policy in the hands of these two plus two from Gujarat. And, I mean, this will become a basically, I don't want to use another continent's name, but this will become, this won't remain the market the world wants to see, you know, one billion strong. People have no money to spend. They have no disposable income. FIIs are pulling out right now. You know, so I think we are looking at beyond doom. We are looking to be in a place where uh, my fear is there will be food rights. There will be, you know, pure mafias on the roads. You know, local thugs who will rule. And those thugs will be in a picking order to hire thugs, you know. And that is extremely scary place to be in from one of the democracies which had a little bit of hope, a little bit of faith in 1947 to 75 years come down here. Huge fall. Well, th thank you for that nuancing. I think most of the audience members uh, would appreciate that. I don't think we are able to see most of us, uh, Punjab's 13 MPs currently, in context of the larger Indian parliament, which is running into 500 something, which you were saying based on the population growths and the policy dictates are heading into somewhere around 700s in coming 
uh, in coming decade, uh, which will be led by these Hindi-speaking, largely Hindutva forces. I, I, you know, so you invoke this Master Tara Singh, and you know, for uh, coming back to the pre-47 conversations a little bit, uh, this is what the dilemma for the Sikh leadership was. Then when this Westminster-style democracy is being brought into South Asia, when Professor Puran Singh is writing an open letter to Sir John Simon, he's essentially saying this, that you don't have these representatives who mean well for individuals. They're going to create and make India into something else. And we are seeing that 75 to 90 years later, uh, the writing is on the wall. It's exactly what Puran Singh was saying and what uh, Tara Singh and Khadak Singhs were facing when they were looking at which battles to fight and who to side with. And these were some of the dilemmas of uh, uh, democratic systems which were being given to the colonies without preparing, quote-unquote, those colonies which the West had uh, ruled over and enslaved. Um, actually, uh, let me... You know, uh, Iqbal has written somewhere that Jamhuriyat ek tamasha hai, Jamhuriyat is democracy, and I think we are seeing those uh, tamashas, those uh, plays uh, being unfolded right in front of our eyes on both sides of the border. You just talked about this. We don't have representatives to talk on the other side, but both states are converging. One already is a security state, and one is becoming a security state. One is trying to come out of security state. At least they foreshadowed that in the last two, three years. And one is going more and more toward uh, acting like a populist security state. And in this context, I want to go to Tiradesh uh, a little bit, that there is a global crisis going on. The world is seeing what India is becoming. State Department had to change certain things and how it looks at who's ruling India and who's ruling Pakistan, and the interesting side of the politics on both sides of the border. And there's a Ukrainian war going on. There are conversations and politicking at United Nations, you know, as some of us jokingly now call untied nations. Uh, but there is a global uh, geopolitical situation with the Ukraine crisis. Wheat has been talked about that. I remember when I've been going back and forth since uh, 84, between the both sides of the border of Wagha uh, Adari borders, uh, between the eastern and western Punjab, uh, cement was a big issue that that trade had stopped four years ago based on what was happening between the two nations. What are the imperatives for trade between India and Pakistan, which goes directly through Punjab? Okay, so <clears throat> before uh, we come to the contemporary part, I'd just like to bring in a bit of history. I think it may be relevant uh, in, for our current conversation. So, even after 47, obviously there was a lot of bloodshed. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, so much suffering, trauma and everything else. But if you actually look at the interactions, you know, a few years after partition, between, uh, say, 47 and the... If you look at trade, for instance, between 47 and the early 50s, and then if you look at people-to-people -people contact... Uh, from the late 40s onwards till 65, it, it, you know, it was, you cannot think of that today. You know, today we are looking at, for many years, we've been invoking EU, we've been looking at ASEAN and things like that. But you had, for instance, Punjab itself had two land crossings, not just Vagatari. You also had Hosaniwala and what is Kasur, uh, or, you know, also referred to as Ganta Singhwala on the other side. And if you look at the, in the, in the early 50s itself, when people actually met, 
you know, cricket during cricket matches or hockey matches, or when they had gone even on pilgrimages or other purposes, uh, there was a lot of. Uh, I mean, they met with a lot of bonhomie. So, one question which I would just like to raise is: Is it the people or is it the uh, you know the political classes of both countries? Very simple. I don't want to get into it because otherwise, what explains the fact that even after so much of acrimony, so much of hostility? Uh, just after 47 you have that sort of interaction so that is the first part now coming to the present i think as such if you look at it looks uh, you know it depends upon which vantage point you look at it from if you look at it from the point of uh, you know the political elite in india obviously it makes no sense that you know by i mean uh, because actually bilateral trade between both countries is happening via dubai and singapore and here i would like it's not just political lobbies in india you have other vested interests outside as well who don't really want uh, you know the trade via wagha tari or via the punjab so there are a number of lobbies involved who don't want now i think what has happened over the past year is that as you very rightly pointed out even before ukraine uh, this the ukraine crisis there was a ceasefire between india and pakistan now, obviously uh, us played an important role in that the saudis played an important role in that there were other geopolitical factors and in 2021 itself there was talk of the resumption of trade and actually imran khan had first given a go ahead to it and then uh, you know some members of his cabinet uh, they objected to it uh, they linked it to uh, the revocation of article 317 jammu and kashmir but there have been some signals that you know again there's no real uh, uh, in fact no ir expert can answer it, but what you know the, in the subcontinent things happen in a very organic manner i think one signal was uh, october last year the cricket match between india and pakistan which was played with less sort of hostility right so that was one thing now after that obviously after november 2021 the reopening of the corridor the sort of media coverage is getting the fact that visas are being issued and even uh, after the reopening the number of uh, visas being issued to religious pilgrims for instance has been increased now coming to the next step i think it just it's purely about economics basically obviously the pakistani consumer will benefit because pakistan has been buying essential commodities at much larger prices and if you look at it first of all from punjab's perspective there are a lot of people who are unfortunately even within punjab when we build the case there are a lot of people who are very skeptical saying that it really doesn't benefit punjab because the larger number of goods actually is from outside but what the, what you know bilateral trade has really helped the tertiary sector so the snapping of trade ties for instance resulted in impacting about 9 to 10000 families uh, in the border belt because in the tertiary sector there were so many job losses so the imperatives are very clear i mean it it, it also apart from the resistance which will come you know from certain uh, lobbies outside punjab and the central government even within i think apart from uh, two members of parliament the member of parliament from amritsar uh, and earlier obviously not uh, i think navjot siddhu was very vocal and now uh, uh, sardar samrajit singh man also spoke about this issue but this needs to be raised uh, in a it needs the issue needs to be articulated in a consistent manner and i don't think that i think this is uh, from a very realistic point of view the reopening of trade at this point is a low hanging fruit especially via the wagha tari border there is no they can irrespective of all the uh, opposition 
this is something which you know beyond a point if there is a people's movement if there's pressure if the business lobbies get together now the way it's conducted creating impediments all that all is a different thing but the reopening first of all by vagatari is a, po- a possibility and in fact earlier uh, earlier governments have even been speaking about opening other trade routes now the problem is that uh, over the past few months you know there has been no verbal mention also of certain issues so trade for instance i mean to be fair irrespective whichever government was there there was at least some mention of bilateral trade with pakistan similarly there was talk about you know connectivity and you know high, uh, uh, increasing the airport, the air connectivity uh, with other countries and so on and so forth so first of all this has to be part of the narrative then uh, a proper narrative you know a, people's movement should be built around this like around other issues the farmers movement had also spoken about bilateral trade it was restricted to agricultural commodities so i think everybody needs to get together and it's i think everybody will benefit it's not that any one particular section will benefit so it needs to be articulated in that sense definitely and you know this is well let's see you know the 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 pakistani side of punjab chaudhry parvez ilahi is back uh, he had shown his affinity much more toward punjabis and sikhs i remember meeting him in uh, uh, mid 2000s i think it was 2006 7 at the time and i remember before uh, it was uh, uh, there was even talked about at this level or there was a plan to open up and do constructions although we have our own reservations on what they really did there parvez ali was the one who was actually ordering the building of the road to nankana sahib from lahore so on this side we have uh, bhagwan singh man and his complexities and perhaps the the two state leaderships can work with their national leaderships to see what can really be opened up here but i think there is there is uh, uh, everyone won't do it unless the state works on certain policies and i think sometimes it's not just the nationalistic policy uh, the pms on the both sides it's the cms on the both side Uh, possibly even some conjunctions with working with the governors who can make this happen so today i want to continue on this uh, thread a little bit more so amritsar even in sikh history especially from the time of guru arjan sahib it had become a much bigger economic center as well you know these days when we look at uh, from a sikh sentiments people mostly look at this is where darbar sahib complex is this is where akal takht is and this is the hub of sikh activity sardar kapoor singh called it that this is the theopolitical hub of all sikh activities but what is more important in this conversation what you are bringing up trade uh, route related and economics related that amritsar several markets were also built by guru arjan sahib and in fact from the guru arjan period onward uh, amritsar had become uh, it had even overtaken to some extent lahore with its activities lot of that has been lost in last 75 years as well uh so more specifically how can the greater connectivity with amritsar between amritsar and lahore help in engaging a more uh even more important economic hub for punjab because economic activities is what ends up trumping everything in the world today we can talk about human rights but economically if they are powerful it kind of connects with what amandeep had said you need banks you know six can work towards it but what is that connectivity look like can you offer more specifics on it what kind of things can the chief ministers and the governors with their pms can work on to create this better connectivity which goes through amritsar and lahore so i think 
there's no one project per se it has to be so when you look at the connectivity between amritsar and lahore if you look at uh, obviously there have been so many gaps and at this point of time the integration is so minimal that it has to be a series of projects so you know uh, and in fact one is uh, here i would like to mention that one is the bilateral part right the uh, india pakistan itself what i would also uh, you know what one what i have been keeping a close watch on earlier is that very as you very rightly pointed out that amritsar actually uh, was part of the larger of the broader silk road right so now when i alluded earlier to uh, the uh, part about air connectivity that was important because your vaga when we talk about vaga tari uh, trade by vaga tari that is one part and obviously as i said the pakistani consumer benefits he gets essential commodities at much cheaper prices uh specifically the tertiary sector of the border belt whether it's hotels and then alongside you have infrastructure generation of jobs all that happens a lot as far as other benefits of punjab are concerned it also depends upon the local level of industrialization so obviously the as i said that you know there is a technicality in that the larger number of goods first of all a smaller number of goods is allowed by the land routes that even when the trade was on not too many goods were allowed by the land route secondly obviously the commodities were from other uh, industrialized uh, states uh, in india but here uh, what you can what can happen is that first if you first of all there is a revival of the trade route uh, tra- revival of trade between vaga and atari and then alongside air connectivity of amritsar is enhanced with iran it's already there with some central asian countries but very limited so with iran uh, central asia Uh, if and when you know for instance even there is now afghanistan also wants to normalize its economic relations with other countries so in the long run even that air connectivity is needed so amritsar needs to be looked at as a economic hub not just from the context of land from the land route but as a multimodal uh, sort of uh, hub economic hub and uh in fact the, the us the us vision of the silk road which ultimately didn't materialize it had really uh, it had actually spoken about it had referred uh, to the importance of amritsar as a regional economic hub and they, then later on there was even talk at one stage when ties between uh, uh india and china had not soured so much that at some you know that there will be if, if there is if the relationship between india and pakistan in terms of trade improves that some common ground can be found with cpec i think that is passe now so in the current uh, geopolitical situation uh, the land route that will obviously benefit amritsar gurdaspur the border belt in job creation giving some spur to the economy and air connectivity i think is is very important and given the uh, economic and geopolitical changes taking and as you see the shift you know the economic center also the if you look at the economic thrust it is moving even out to different parts of the world so lot of uh diasporas also in other uh, not just in the west but in in the middle east in southeast asia they can benefit and even if you when we look at selling of agricultural commodities if you have air connectivity automatically you get more markets in fact there's been reference also that we want to sell agricultural commodities to the middle east you want to sell to other parts so air connectivity is very essential well that's a great point you know uh, on the both side not just uh, what the way you are invoking making amritsar a little bit of a more regional uh, hub uh, beyond india and pakistan as well but even within india i mean if you look at it 
we don't even have flights from Chandigarh to Amritsar currently. Uh, we would love to see that. And then from Chandigarh to Lahore and Chandigarh to Islamabad uh, or Amritsar to Islamabad, because those will allow for uh, uh, the things that you were talking about. But moving on to my next part, it will all also allow politicians to get into these modes. And they can demand that from within their countries, within their PMs. And the politician I invoke, because, you know, even at the time of Guru Nanak Sahib, I'm just recalling this right now. There was a Sikh of Guru Nanak who had traveled from Punjab near Kartarpur all the way to Sangladeep, today Sri Lanka, to do trade work. He was a businessman who used to go for a couple of months a year to do those things. And it was his behavior and his leadership which had connected a king of Sri Lanka with the ideas of Punjab through Guru Nanak Sahib's Shabad. And that context, I am going to come back to Amandeep. Amandeep, uh, politicians, we just got onto that. Let's look at, we have current CMs who are, well, the, the, the we have a new CM, Chief Minister in Punjab, on the Indian side of Punjab. And we have a old timer, Chaudhary, who has come back as the CM of the Western Punjab. Uh, within the Indian side of Punjab, the political consciousness has been rising. It has definitely been rising slowly and steadily since 90s, but much more so in last five years. And it's very much clear based on the data of both the Punjab elections as well as the national elections, uh, uh, MPs and MLAs is what I'm referring to. Earlier, and we had this conversation, and in this, they uprooted uh, the old politicians in last elections. Uh, the vulnerability and not using the arms and not playing into playing into the state's games, uh, that's been commendable. Uh, the state earlier used to physically kill uh, Sikhs and Punjab, uh, Punjabis, but now they're doing it not just to Sikhs and Punjabis, but also to Sikhs and Punjabis. They're cutting the vices. In this reality, in this new political consciousness, what can the people of Punjab do? What can Punjabis and Sikhs do? Uh, well, I think this rising political consciousness reflected and developed as well. Both things happened simultaneously during the Kisan Morcha. And I think it was a, it was a great time, you know, uh, to, to present ourselves in a very different league not only to India, but to the world as well. Of course, many rifts that we talked about earlier, nothing gets fully bridged, but at least they came together for this agenda. But what happened was something more than that. That the sense of whether Congress or Akalis, you know, they are not indestructible. You know, that the average Punjabi learned it. And that is why we saw what happened in the elections. I mean, that kind of hit to every stalwart leader from the two traditional parties. I think the, the election result was uh, a growing of that political consciousness reflected in an electoral space. Sadly, the options were not too much and the, the guys in waiting got the power. Uh, I'm saying sadly because, very frankly, we aren't seeing uh, in the last six months the kind of 
governance Punjab needed at this stage. When the elections happened, somebody interviewed me and I said, Punjab has voted at the edge of its political choices. You know? And uh, beyond that is what? And that is why I'm saying, as I earlier said, the need for a local party. But what you said that they were killing us earlier, and now they're killing our voice, even then they were killing our voice. You know, The Delhi-based state-controlled media was either um, blanking out the Sikh point of view, the Punjab crisis, the entire argument for it was either blanked out or misrepresented. And all those guys, we know the, the main characters who did that here in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, you know. But during the farmers' protest, now we were pitted against a much more powerful corporate-controlled media, which was pro-state, because largely their ownership of this media was going to benefit from the farm laws if they had been implemented. And Punjab also had a whole new generation which has become savvy with internet, which has got educated, which has learned how to do things. Earlier, we, in the previous period of crisis, we were focusing on the battle on ground. But now we learned that battles are also of narratives. And I think in the Kisan Murcha, the Punjab excelled the narrative battle. In fact, it finally won because not only within Punjab, which was in Punjabi, but into North India with Haryana, Rajasthan, West UP, in Hindi, or even across the country, or internationally, everywhere the farmer's point of view went through. And even now, I mean, you look at Europe, what is happening now, like the Dutch, the Italians, the Polish, the Germans, they're all protesting. Because there was a sense, and I'm not saying that the Kisan Morcha was the only time it came up, and for the last 15 years, there have been unions who have been fighting. But this developing a narrative, to me, that is a strength. So when say, Musewala's song is removed or Kaval Garewal's song is removed. You know, look at what happens. I mean, Bandi Singh becomes an issue in the parliament. Until now, it hadn't. Now, the media which created this, part of it went off to the new government which came. Yet, there is some media which remains independent, which walks a razor's edge. And I think if Punjab has to succeed, it has to support this media. It has to support narratology of Punjab. That is very important for us. And this voice, if it can build, it's okay. Some YouTube removal doesn't matter. I mean, by the time they remove from YouTube, everybody has downloaded it on their, on their mobile phones, you know. In fact, many times banning actually, nowadays, banning actually makes the thing more popular. But that they can continue doing. But the sense that Punjab should now have is, and again, I'll go back to focus on our issues, own our issues, and then fight that battle of narratives. Because that is where we have continued to win. And we must keep winning that. That's a, that's a great point, Abhanna, that the narrative, uh, I actually invoke many a time when I'm having sick conversations, which are actually for a global benefit, that Guru Nanak's narrative is born out of Ikko Vankar. This idea of that there is oneness, uh, this all creative and pervasive force is among all seven and a half billion people. Yeah, so I mean, taking back to 
It was very interesting what you talked about. I mean, developing Amritsar as a hub. I wanted to know. I am sorry, I don't remember clearly. But what is happening with Rajasthansi? Is it being developed or is it being curved right now? Okay, so I think uh, the biggest challenge uh, for Rajasthansi is not. It's not just it. One is Indira Gandhi International Airport. You know, there has been this demand about direct flights. Now, even within Punjab, most of the flights. Are being you know rather than Rajasansi, Mohali uh, Airport is being given preference. Now that yeah. is all right. I mean I'm not saying that, but Mohali obviously that benefits, uh, you know it services tourists from other part. I mean not just from Punjab, from other from Chandigarh and from other states as well. The ultimate benefit for Punjab and as I said, even if tomorrow trade opens up and you need to think of it in a you know uh, regional sort of context, you need to have both land trade and you need to have air connectivity. You know, for instance, yeah. and it so can only I, happen by Amritsar. Yeah. Yeah. So I was asking about that. I mean, as a dry port, are they developing Rajasansi or there is some news there, right? Which I am sorry, it's not my area, so I'm missing it. No, but you can educate us about that. Yeah. No, no, it's it's not specifically uh, uh, my, but I of late, uh, I don't think there's any tangible uh, sort of development in that area. In fact. Uh, even when you look at the connectivity, even with the, with Afghanistan in 2017, they had built, you know, these uh, uh, trade corridor, air corridors, basically for trade between India and Afghanistan. So, in fact, a lot of people had been saying that apart from Mumbai, Delhi, uh, Amritsar should also be one. Of, you you know have one such trade corridor with Kabul, with Herat and all that. So it wasn't included in that. Now I see again uh, if at the official level if. I'm not privy to something. I don't know, but otherwise, uh, the it's it is not at this point of time getting the attention which it deserves from the angle of uh, not just regional connectivity, but even a connectivity for the diaspora. But recently, yeah. one uh, international airlines has taken uh, an important initiative that is, uh, I think, uh, Scoot of Singapore. So what they have done is that they have a flight uh, uh, from uh, I think Amritsar, Singapore, then then till Vancouver. So that that will help in servicing uh, the passengers from Canada. I mean, uh, tourists from Canada, you know, who want to come to Punjab directly. So they can first, I think, come to Singapore, then they can go. Yeah. Yeah. But sir, going back to the topic where we were, you know, like, uh, do you see a possibility going forward? See what has happened as a result of the Ukraine war, the Russia-Ukraine war, is actually NATO has been shown to be small. You know, it, it could not really counter it. And like right now, Europe is facing a crisis of both food grain as well as gas. And Russia is sitting on the gas, you know, like, so, you know, uh, they were thinking of exporting from Odessa port again, you know, while they are at war, you know, like, so, but, so the geopolitical power relations have shifted. Biden is going lower on his rankings. I mean, the recent visit to Taiwan was actually yes. to shore up those rankings. Right, right. right. So there is a crisis happening there. Do you see a new set of powers emerging? And if it is like, where would we in the world, in the globe, look at the non-Western powers which are emerging? Where, where would you locate that? I mean, is it Middle East? Is it Dubai? Is it UAE? Where is it? I think that's a very good question. So, first of all, I think now the narrative will shift. I think, you know, the 
conventional ir terms about being powers great power middle power or that to some extent is passe you know it is all issue based to some and in fact and the importance of swing states is increasing i think mm-hmm. and in that i would uh, like to uh, you know to cut i mean i won't keep it too long i think the, some of the middle eastern states are becoming very important i mean uh, if you look at uh, qatar for instance on so many issues it's intervened and what i think as to stu- students of geopolitics what really is fascinating for all uh, is that uh, earlier in the middle east for instance it was saudi arabia which was taken for granted that they dominated the saudi arabia and israel now qatar has upstaged them and uae also not so much geopolitically but because of its economic development but because of being in sync with the times and uh, I, in fact recently one of the interesting things for instance was that for the handling of the uh, airports in afghanistan it is a uae based company you know which is going to, which has been handled over not not a qatari company so while our eyes are always on uh, the great powers on china on us and so on and so forth it is some of these uh, swing states which are beginning to play a very important role and i think in any case the the uh, western notion of ir about great power middle power for some time i think that has become passe now it's okay as a starting point but in the current for, for understanding the geopolitical situation right now i think that's incomplete that's tough too thank you uh, guys for taking over can you hear me okay now okay yes uh, yes absolutely thanks for feeling that question so um, uh or to uh to through the wish and uh, essentially i was going to ask that and how do we get the new diasporas you know earlier diasporas used to be very malaysia and kenya based and they were uh then there were western diasporas were coming in and you had mentioned the farmers protest part uh that how the global diasporas kicked in and and he has already answered this how can dubai or other middle middle eastern places can become another mini hubs for punjabis and sikhs because they are already there or either businesses or laborers uh but then how can they be brought into policy matters i'm only going back to you what i was asking when i got disconnected was so there is obviously a political consciousness going on but there is a political crisis in punjab there is a electoral crisis if you look at the last 3 months of indian punjab as well as well as on the other side of wagga border but we'll stay on the indian side there is also an intellectual crisis in punjab even in farmers protests you know uh what was really coming out we eventually have to deal with the government with the policy maker with the pragmatic solutions there is also governance crisis because the sick institutions the of institutions are performing well yes because this is on the very uh, akalis just celebrated 100 years of their setting up of the political party at akal takht at sri akal takht to represent the sikh political rights Uh, they changed that in 1995 in the moga conference so the six sentiments are wondering and i want to take your take from a historical angle as well as in the recent election panel uh, angle that are all these crises which we are talking about are they primarily uh, due to the akali politics we are witnessing in front of especially in last year uh yes to a great extent yes because they were uh not only uh spearheading the sikh aspiration uh but they were also fiddling with the aspiration they were also uh aspiring for other things than what the sikhs were actually aspiring for it uh, last 25 years there has been a 
power of one family on the on the matters of Sikhs and the SGPC and the Khalsa side. Sorry to say that, um, but uh, yes, it is related to them. There is no doubt about it. But you know, I think again, naming something, naming what is wrong, is very important to be able to analyze how what to do about it. But this naming has been going on since at least 2015, if not before, you know, because ever since the sacrilege incidents, the Bay of the Bees, uh, we are quite clear now what has been going on here. They were discredited in 2017 elections, 2019 elections, 2022 elections. They recently had a conference in which, uh, uh, except the Supremo, uh, the whole party is being reorganized, <laughs> which is actually a farce because the problem is that they have been holding on the reins of the party for too long. But you know, to me, it is that is not that is not the only issue here. I think there is a deeper crisis, and that goes back to the first question that you asked: Is it like are we in a are we primed to battle and not strategize? Are we primed to fight all the time and not develop our own thinking? Are we giving in to easy factionalism between ourselves and not taking the bull by its horns, so to say. I think that is where we need to reflect as people because, I mean, the leaders will come and go. But what does a community together want? Where is that space in the community where I can like look at and say, okay, this is what the community wants. We don't have a convergence of ideas from our little, little pockets where we sit in. You know, and then we hold on to grudges for way too long. I think this is, I mean, one can understand it psychologically what why this is so, but that's not helping us anymore. You know, and that is again why I emphasized on a rethinking has to happen ground up. And on the basis of that, we need to see how to and if Akalis are not relevant, they will follow. You know, there has been a Singh Sabha movement 2.0 due for the last 20 years at least. You know, and that will happen. And that's okay. But somebody needs to come up, ground up, and be able to represent the aspirations of the Sikhs and all Punjabis for that matter, because the region is such, we are in crisis. Yeah. Amandeep, I, I get your point and I fully get that. And you had earlier uh, shared that a regional party in Punjab is needed, which understands what Punjab needs and can represent the Punjab, all factions here. I brought in Akalis more because Akalis used to be that consistent force for 100 years. And in uh, post-47 India, uh, Indian side, they were the force until 80s, and they had their own, uh, generally speaking, three veins. And it was when uh, hegemony was developed within the Akalis, uh, and it was the you know this elements of that this is a family business, and the family will own Akalis, and that has brought this kind of a distraught. So Akalis need their own uh, sort of a uh, revivalism. But I'll take it to the last point and apologies to the viewers. Uh, we will take your cues in another five to seven minutes. These are my last questions to both of them. So Amandeep, uh, 
Akali's need revival, Punjab needs its own party, maybe other than Akali's, some other Sikh party can be developed, which is more uh, honest and can have a, a better governance and the better aspirations of its people, especially the Sikhs. But we recently saw again a battle, and again a battle where is, uh, which was won. And it was celebrated across party lines and across, uh, I would say, religious lines and to certain level, social strata lines as well. So this new environmental consciousness, which has been witnessed within last month in Punjab through the Mattewada campaign of saving the forest, what kind of positive, uh, sort of maybe a little bit more prescriptive uh, sharings you can do, uh, even in the darkest period, even when government is not working, even when governance and other crises are looming, including a Kali crisis, this environmental consciousness just brought us a quick success. Can this be modeled to create some other immediate successes while uh, the long-term plans are being shuffled within the communities and organizations and parties? Oh, definitely. See, the, the issue with, the real issue with Punjab is that everything is interwoven with each other. One you open one and then you can open the others. You know. So, the Mattewada or environment was a, is and will remain a great starting point. Because finally, this is the largest crisis that Punjab faces. You know, it is becoming a desert. And we need to stop that from happening. It's partly becoming a desert because we have been growing paddy all these years, which have been feeding India, but we have not been eating it, but our water has been going down. It is becoming a desert for industrial pollution. It's becoming a desert for very, very low uh, forest cover and various other reasons. So Mattewada was brilliant. In one day, the government reversed its stand. But I would like to remind that just like Mattewada, because it deserves a higher pedestal in ranking of agitations, but there were three or four other farmers' protests that also got results within one day. See, everybody has realized that this these people, if they get... Right now, there's a protest going on outside Jalandhar over sugar dues in the Dwaba region. You know. And today, I think Bhagwan Man released out of 295, some another 100 crore for it. You know. I think they realize that the people have become conscious. The people are willing to fight. And the people, as they saw last year, can stay on and keep fighting. And they will have the arsenal with them. That should actually be the starting point to do anything that we want to do here. The issue is that environment is not environment alone. Environment is linked to rivers, then links to river waters, then linked to power capacity, then linked to agrarian policies, then linked to how much outlay, the government is willing to spend economics, you know. So everything is linked. But taking the, the environment path to me and the political action committee, which sort of spearheaded the Matewala, plus many individuals also, definitely credit to all of them together. But they are now starting something on the Buddha Nala Darya also, you know. They are starting something in every district of Punjab. 
And this is how I think there is a great spark here. And we must, again, bring in the entire strength of, as a writer, the strength of narrative to back it up. Yeah. And everybody can bring their strength. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, we are discussing 47, where uh, largest migration, uh, rapes, lootings, killings are the horror images we have. And even in answering this question, you says, There are too many knots. And, you know, as soon as you said that, people of Punjab, even in 70s, Jansang of Punjab in Jalandhar, and when I visit on the other side in Lahore, for example, Sayyid Najam Hussain Sangat, they all read Sukhmani, Sukhmani Sahib of Guru Arjan. And I'm invoking that because people of Punjab read that. It wasn't that only six were reading Sukhmani. And there the line comes, Tuti Gandan Har Gopal. You know, how to retie what's broken. Oh, Gopal Kardaga. And this idea of Gopal is, I think, very instructive for all of us that it's an idea of a Kohankar, of the one which, who's taking care. Jada, uh, go is earth or creation, and Pal is caretaker. So if we become the caretakers, not the owners, not the people filled with pride, that idea, and this environmental resurgence, uh, environmental consciousness through Mattewada, and it's a global thing, but in Punjab we are saying this, if we become caretakers of our institutions or parties, rather than owners of it, rather than pride-filled ones, then we may be able to go toward these uh, revivalists, uh, revivals in, in, in various things which are broken. I bring the last question to you, Tridivesh, uh, and this is also, I want to end with a more positive notes that, and you've talked about this in your writings, uh, and uh, we have had conversations about this, that Sikhs and Punjabis globally, globally are flourishing. And in this flourishing, there have been many individual successes, personal successes are being seen, and a lot of them are coming into, uh, I think we are seeing the early phases of this, community successes, whether it's in politics, whether it's in developing philanthropy toward Punjab, even if it's happening through Darbar Sahib complex or village adoption models. So knowing that Sikhs and Punjabis, this applies to both, don't have uh, uh, the Raj of their own currently, because in eight, until 18, 1849 we did, and before that there were various trials of that. What is the soft power which Punjabis and Sikhs can exercise in order to develop uh, this sort of uh, pre-47 understandings uh, and within the national confines of India and Pakistan. So the roles of diaspora, the roles of Sikhs within India and Punjab, uh, and the roles of Punjabis uh, globally. What, how can we exercise our soft power better? <clears throat> so we've ob obviously over the past couple of years, as we've been discussing, we've seen it in different forms. Uh, I think the Kartarpur Religious Corridor is one dimension of it. The role played by Sikhs globally during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, the seva, that was also recognized. I think one is, there are two things. One is at an intellectual narrative, you know, for the global audience in terms of globally, I think uh, Sikhs have, a, in terms of the global economic narrative, you know, that... Uh, where there's this increasing talk, you know, uh, 
uh, inequalities and so on and so forth. so i think this it, a model of economic growth which has space for uh, enterprise but also which can check you know this growing uh, in these growing inequalities and where the emphasis is not just purely on uh, profit so that is i mean in terms of economic terms that is one area that's one way of doing it uh, the second is also i think uh, one issue which one challenge which i i didn't point out earlier it's not directly linked to this but it, i think there is also an issue of uh, not just ideological divide but also in terms of you know the, the when you look at the diaspora different you know the professions and the influence on the overall sikh narrative so when i spoke about the diaspora for instance in you know places like malaysia or in uae in singapore it was also about bringing in that narrative of you know uh, uh, the entrepreneurship of enterprise which you have pointed out to you need a balance of both you can always tilt one way depending upon you know the economic cycle but you need a balance of both and apart from uh, the diaspora outside i think even the punjabi diaspora within india outside is also sort of soft power because some of them have done very well you you have to include them in the conversation as well so i would say moving one is uh, what we have already discussed you know on uh, taking on so when whether, whether it was islamophobia whether it was covid the, the other is now contributing to a larger to the broader economic debate you know by uh, one is obviously through the sikh thought that is for uh, sikh scholars to do but otherwise also these success stories there is obviously there is a link to uh, the sikh spirit uh, of resilience and i would like to point out uh, that one some of the success stories actually are while on the one hand obviously punjab has suffered a lot i mean there is no uh, this thing but you also have post 1947 punjabis including six who uh, without any concessions without anything they post 1947 they built up big businesses within india you know uh, and that is an example of resilience that also is an example i mean obviously doesn't come into the modern day soft power but i thought i should flag this point because often we forget the resilience of those who suffered in partition and without concessions without anything on their own you know by their own wits they developed and through the hard work they uh, achieved a lot well thank you for that and you know we are we are also seeing that finally uh, within last decade there's a partition museum which is talking about some of the voices from that time we have a 47 archive which is recording multiple narratives regardless of uh, individuals uh, uh, religious or at at well i'll just call it religious backgrounds and economic backgrounds we are also seeing even this week i was just looking at uh, the the coverage which uh, in addition to the nationalism stuff which goes on even hindu newspaper has published articles in their uh, weekend magazines regarding partition voices which include all of these things um this this thank you both tridesh and uh, uh, amandeep for conversation i want to take up some of the audience questions uh, one of the first comments which came up and i just want to acknowledge that it's not a question and we agree it was basically saying we need to have a precision and clarity around the terms like nation state country union empire and calling india nation is a misrepresentation constitutionally it is defined as a union and in reality it behaves like an empire look we acknowledge that these terms are loaded indigenous term in punjab used to be raj and we understand that term but depending on whether it's an academic study 
whether how constitution even within India have been changed. It had become in 70s uh, socialist republic, actually. Uh, these terms are fluid. These terms are legal, but they also have economic, sorry, uh, academic understandings as well as legal understandings. And we we understand that. And we were using these terms more loosely today in our conversations for the public benefit. But here's our first question. It's from Jim in London. And he says, given the commonality of some aspects of language, culture, and heritage, what can be done to develop a non-religious feeling of a pan-Punjabi identity across both India and Pakistan? Um, Aman, would you like to take this? Yeah, because it's, it's very dear to me and it uh, sadly, I don't see this uh, this uh, line of argument developing. I mean, we lament that Punjabi is dying. We lament that schools are not teaching Punjabi. We lament that um, children are not following up on Gurmukhi. But to me, very frankly, is the, a language is related to markets. You know, hmm. if an individual can thrive in a language, they will learn the language. And to me, it is very important that every individual be able to be monolingual and be able to exist. They don't have to learn another language. Like what is Punjab now doing? It's trying to learn English and go off somewhere abroad, you know. But I think it is if these two Punjabs, and that relates to Ridwish point, if they develop trade together, then we are such a big strength that we actually can exist within the language and the language will grow. And that is a point I've been trying to, I've emphasized it in the book. I've been trying to talk about it. But we don't need to look at it as what is not happening, but as what we can happen, what we must do, and how to develop a market in Punjabi, and automatically the language will grow. And that would be non-religious. That's that's a great point. Thank you for sharing um, that. And I also yeah, recall that just, when just, I... Go ahead. Just, just a footnote. I mean, Urdu developed like that. Yeah. Yes. And I think one of the things what we actually may not appreciate it fully, Punjabi is the only language in the history, at least in last thousand years, we can see, when it has never been a state language. So the kind of development which is needed in order for language to come together in from a governance angle, from economic, and there are efforts going on. I just want to mention that I think Guru Nanak Sahib and Sikhs have a lot to do with bringing Punjabi to this level where even the six states did not have Punjabi as its language, but the gurus adopted it to the large extent, among other languages. But they also reminded us it's the language of love which you're interested in. But each guru's project was in Punjab. I think the current efforts are there. I'm looking at, and I I'm, I'm participate in some of those, uh, that the books which are used to be only in Shamukhi, their Punjabi Gurmukhi versions are coming up on the uh, on the Western Punjab side, and they're also asking for more and more books. Uh, whether it's the institutions like Pilak are coming up, whether it's the musicians who are trying to talk about both sides of the border equally, I think it's the state and the nations which they are in, which is not allowing much of it, but if through education, through what Amandeep mentioned, and through some of the trade routes that may be possible. Uh, moving on to uh, this question, Trividesh, is for you. This is from 
Hargobind and Kuala Lumpur. So here you go. You're going beyond India and Pakistan here. And he says that bilateral trade between Punjab and Pakistan, what I, I think he means is Indian Punjab to the Pakistani Punjab, would seem like a dangerous idea to the central government. Uh, how can this concept be escalated to the powers that be to a point where we could possibly see implementation? Okay, so you see, as I said, I mean, before 2019, before February 2019, you can say that trade, uh, bilateral trade was, I mean, it was obviously not at the level which it should be, but it was going in the right direction. It's after 2019 that there has been a dip. Now, we need to recognize a couple of things. One, obviously, there is a lot of opposition on this side. But we also need to be mindful. You know, what happens is that sometimes uh, our biases take over and we don't look at the facts. There is also opposition from other from lobbies on the other side. So technically, actually, trade was snapped in August 2019 by the other side. So what the Indian side did was it imposed tariffs, removed MF and made it virtually, you know, impossible to have any reasonable level and then Pakistan did that. So apart from obviously as I have already said you know that you know you have you have, need to articulate this you need to create interest in business lobbies which across the board and this also will require a bit of uh, bipartisanship you know whether for instance can you get all political parties of Punjab on board because in the past uh, there have been times where even the BJP local units of Punjab have included this as a demand opening up of so can you do that sort of thing that is one and second you also need to understand that on the other side there is uh, uh, some amount of apprehension it's not that they don't want bilateral trade but they're very you know uh, like like you have uh, in India there are lobbies which are wary of competition so that side also needs to be addressed but if there are synergies uh, you know, the business lobbies, they will open up right away. But if there are not, then there will be certain areas where Pakistan also needs to first convince its domestic uh, constituencies. So the problem is on both sides. So uh, obviously, on our side, it requires political articulation. There, it's only when you reach a point for them when it becomes imperative that, you know, you need to open up and give up. There are already instances. So as I said, in 2021, they were about to open up trade. Recently, the Pakistan prime minister also said, that opening up, you know, he has alluded to it in some form. Uh, Bilawal Bhutto has also done it. I really don't see full-fledged trade, bilateral trade happening. But yes, in an incremental manner, it will probably begin via essential commodities and then can move on to the next level. Thank you for that. And I, these are the pragmatic realities, right? None of us are suggesting that it is this or that. There are multiple things needed, including at the trade level. Because at the end of the day, the... Pakistan is an Islamic Republic and they have a larger con uh, concentration of their constituencies and they have to solve many things within Pakistan. Punjab is only one of the issues they're dealing with. Similarly, on the Indian side, the larger constituency is not Sikhs or Punjab, as we discussed today, and they have to solve many things on the Indian side. But this is where uh, certain things can be done by central or federal or national governments, uh, which is what the Radesh is alluding to. Uh, next question is from GP in Bahrain. Okay, so we are getting a Middle Eastern question. It's getting interesting today. Uh, it's good to see that because usually they get dominated by US, UK, and Canada, and maybe that's the Sikh dominance uh, over over representing the soft power. So it's good to see that today. Uh, and Gurpreet says that 
Despite growing political consciousness and willing narrative war, the uh, he meant winning, winning narrative war, the dominance of Hindutva Brahmanical ideology is growing. So is it that Brahmanism drives its strength from united India? We have seen the abuse of central agencies, whether it's forces, judiciary, election commission, media, intelligence agencies, to gain dominance of Hindutva. Things are going from bad to worse. So is there a hope of liberation for minorities, Dalits, tribals in united India? Uh, Amandeep? I said you fight because you hope. And I mean, you obviously can't leave out more than 80% of the population and just keep benefiting the 5 to 7% class, which is like the Brahmin and the Baniya class. Um, whatever devices you might bring in, I mean, the Manu Smriti or, you know, the caste or gender, they use all these to basically exploit everyone, bring up the sense of united India, as I said, GDP to DP, this whole Tiranga is being used for. But they're very well entrenched now. Hmm. And I think at two levels, it's not only that they win elections or they buy out, you know, they buy out opposition members, you know, and they make governments. In many states, they have done that. Uh, but they're entrenched in different ways, that their own Hindutva project has been going on actively at least for the last 30, 40 years. And they have entrenched themselves in levels of bureaucracy where they now, once they got into power, they could very easily, you know, like termites eat away the wood of this country called India. You know, and, and, and that is the crisis, that if they win elections, they don't have policies. But if anywhere they lose elections, they are very notorious opposition. They don't let governments function. I mean, look at UPA 2, 2007 to 2014, you know, 2009 to 2014. They don't let governments function. They don't do anything themselves. And this is the rot that has set into Indian society. But you fight. Sometimes, suddenly, just like Maharashtra, they toppled the government by changing the leader of the party. Here, the next day, Nitish Kumar gave them a jolt in Bihar. You know, so in politics, one day is a big time and one week is a long time. And things happen. But it doesn't stop with coming to power or not coming to power. The rot that has set in, the education that masses of people need, the sense which Punjab got through its political consciousness, that we will throw away the yoke that binds us down. That will take much longer to seep into India. And I just hope it doesn't implode before that. Well, and, you know, the, the ratings for India and Pakistan are converging, whether we look at uh, economics, uh, ease of doing businesses to uh, press freedom and things of that nature. So uh, what you were said, uh, equal equivalent of that, and I'm not, I don't want to create false equivalents, similar things are happening on the other side of the border. And this is the stark reality of South Asia. In this stark reality of South Asia, what are your closing uh, comments? Uh, one minute each. Uh, Amandeep? Well, I think we should have these conversations and I'm glad that... I think I would leave it at a, at a high note. I mean, recently, Pen America asked me to write for them and I wrote something which was, you know, 
ंगल्ड but i think we need to recalibrate ourselves and say let us hold on to a better world that we knew and let us try to then keep it in place and maybe the next generation will build on it thank you aman natadesh so i think uh, the first part is obviously there there are a lot of concerns so you can't use the word you can't be optimistic as such but you need to flag your concerns but also uh, not lose sight of what may seem small wins but are significant wins especially you know in the context of punjab in the context of the six over the last 2 to 3 years now uh, uh, any uh, major uh, big bank change obviously takes time but we can't lose sight of that and also i think you have to uh, you have to be ready for the good fight always so uh, i would i would neither be very uh, optimistic there is a lot to be concerned about but at the same time i think uh, punjab has the potential of showing the way not just uh, with india but even in the context of south asia well uh, thank you trudesh you know you you spoken like a policy analyst and amandeep spoken like an author so that's how those are the your prime uh, traits uh, you do many other things both of you do that look you know i uh, all i can say is before i pass it on to mandinder is you know professor puan singh has written somewhere in in 100 years ago where he says punjab jiya mulk mainu koi hor na dista and it's a, he is a poem called punjab desh pyar ware and this idea of punjab uh, as we have been discussing primarily in last 75 years and primarily in last 30 years of truncated punjab but it's much bigger and perhaps we need to look at extrapolating some of that instead of looking at in a smaller confine which we have now gotten used to and looking at this larger civilization and how that civilization has been uh reduced to the current realities in the post british india uh the second thing i would mention and the last thing is that you know mental health is back on our minds we talk about many things we think about many things it's depressing to look at certain things at the same time we look for the light and the light i leave with is that guru sahab has a shabad in guru granth sahib where he says man pardesi jethiye sab desh paraya that if we are become foreigners in our own mind the outsiders in our own mind then regardless of which nation state raj republic country union territory and whatever other words we can use we are living in they will always remain foreign whether it's an indigenous rule ruled by people of our kind our ideology none of that will matter if our mind is foreign so i think that gives us a something to recalibrate uh, as the word amandeep had used and to be pragmatic as tridesh was implying uh, hopefully the next 75 years some of you get to do more conversations on and perhaps pick an element to work on so the next decade becomes better for the six for the punjabis and for the larger south asia thank you manvinder uh, for closing 
Amazing. Thank you so much. I'll just do a, a quick closing as I know we're running out of time. Um, on behalf of Sikri, I thank Amandeep Singh, Harinder Singh, Thridivish Singh, and our Sangat today. Thank you all, all for tuning in and for spending this time with us uh, for your questions. Uh, thank you. And apologies to those whose questions were not addressed due to time constraints. I'll just give you a little sneak peek of our next webinar. Uh, so next month on September 17th, we'll be hosting a webinar titled Border Crossings. You can register um, at sikri.org slash events. Uh, we'll reflect on the enduring effects of partition through a conversation with third generation per per partition descendants from India and Pakistan who are also oral historians doing the work of memory. So we'll explore how their memory work both transcends and is contained by national borders and boundaries and how it challenges the divide between this and that. So I think something uh, interesting about our presenters, so Anjal Mahotra, Anam Zagaria, they are, uh, Anjal is a Indian author and Anam is a Pakistani author and the conversation will be moderated by Shruti Devgan, who's moderated for us before. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Again, you can register at sikri.org slash events. Uh, and just to finally close this out, as always, a recording of today's webinar um, will be available and emailed out to everyone within 24 hours. Thank you for joining in today. Today's webinar will be ending now. Vaigujika Kalsa, Vaigujiki Fateh. You are listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.